Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church Podcast. We love to hear about life change in our church. So if you have a story about how Velocity has made a difference in your life, send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Maybe that's a word for somebody. But the point of this, the point of this is that middlemen matter. And when I was in grad school, I was really fortunate. Uh, the place where I went to school started a center for network analysis. Now, that sounds really dorky, maybe, maybe technical. But they were on the cutting edge of this. And I don't want to date myself, but I'll be giving other stories about my life that'll, that'll do that for you. But we're talking pre-Facebook. Like, this is before social media is really a thing. <laughs> and there, right? Thank you. I look good, though, right? I mean, yeah, Okay. You laughed at that, so this is going really well. Um, one of the things that, so, that network analysis does is it looks at the impact of the connections that you have in your life, the relationships you have in your life. And it measures that two ways, both in number of total relationships, how many, how many people you're connected to, but also the, there are all these measures of relative strengths of those networks, like how strongly are we connected? Because um, somebody that you might just know from your work has a very different level of connection with you than somebody maybe like that's a significant other or a family member. So we're measuring number of relationships total, but also depth of those relationships. So there's a, there's a paper, one of the most influential papers, and you didn't know you were getting a lecture today, so that's <laughs> bonus. So you're getting a sermon and a lecture in one. Um, it's by a professor named Mark Granovetter, and his paper is called The Strength of Weak Ties. And in this paper, what he does is basically maps people's networks and then does an analysis to figure out does the dimensions, the strength, and the breadth of somebody's network have an independent effect on their success, independent of how smart they are, independent of where they went to school, independent on all of their experience, all those other characteristics. It's basically how many middlemen do you know? And what he discovers is that there's a, there's a highly statistical, statistically significant effect of the depth and breadth of your network and your career success. It has nothing to do with how smart you are. That has nothing to do with where you went to school. It has nothing to do with your experience that's independent of those things. To give you a sense of like how influential this has been, this is a paper that since it was published has been cited over 50,000 times. And maybe some of you, I'm guessing by the reaction, like that if I said that in one of my graduate classes, people would be like, oh. But let me give you guys some context to interpret that. Uh, number of citations in the academic world is the equivalent of a like or a retweet, which means, <laughs> which means that Granovetter is the sociology equivalent of Kylie Jenner. And so, and you can do with that what you want. But, Here's the thing, his big groundbreaking finding is that the middlemen you have access to impact your future. So what I wanna tell you about for just a minute, if you'll indulge me, and you have to, because I've got the microphone in my hand, is the most important middleman that you've never heard of. And she may listen to this on the podcast, so, and I did not seek her permission to share this story, so I will ask her forgiveness publicly. Uh, but the most important middleman you've never heard of's name is Amy Lawson. And maybe some of you are writing that down. You don't need to. You can. But why is Amy Lawson the most important middleman that you've never heard of? It's because that's the person who introduced me to my beautiful wife, Melinda, who's sitting right over here. 
So I'm scoring some brownie points, but let me tell you this story. Some of you guys have heard this story. Oh, that's a lie. Some of you guys have heard the version of this story that I like to tell people. But I feel like it's probably not good to stand on the platform at church on Sunday and not tell the truth. So I'm going to give you guys the real version of that story. So I worked with Amy. Um, I didn't, uh, I otherwise would have had, uh, I'm trying to say this in a way that like doesn't make me look like a bad person, but I otherwise <laughs> would not have probably had an opportunity to get Melinda to say yes to go on a date with me, absent Amy. And the reason that I know this is because Melinda and I actually, she came to a party that my roommates and I had freshman year of college and stayed for all of about four minutes <laughs> and then left and went somewhere cooler. So uh, Amy and I worked together and, um, and she was that middleman. Like she said, I have a friend that I, wanna, that I wanna connect you with. I have somebody that I think you would really like and that would really like you. And I was like, great. Who's going to say no to that? What's the, what's the plan? What are we going to do? And so this shows like how God works because Amy came up with the most harebrained, like illogical scheme. We had a class together. It's how we connected. And then we worked together. But what she said is like, well, what I'm going to do is uh, Melinda's one of my roommates. I'm going to bring you over to our house under the guise of us working on a group project. And then you'll get an opportunity to meet Melinda. And I was like, hey, you know, this sounds pretty good, right? This could, this, this could work. And then it turned out that the, the plan was to come over on a Friday night to work on a group project for school. Now, some of you, like, I'm not going to go into, like, where I came. It's a whole different story. You can come to Growth Track. You can ask questions. But it was very unlikely that I was actually going to be working on a school project <laughs> on, a, on a Friday evening. And I think even more unlikely than Amy was. Here's the part where I know that God was at work. Because when I got there, Melinda wasn't there. She was out on a date with somebody else. And the meeting was happening when she came home from that date. So I'm at, her, I'm at, I'm at their place working on a group project that doesn't really exist, looking at my watch, being like, when is she going to show up? And Melinda comes in the door from a date with some other guy. And that's how we met. And so... Um, all I can say is that we have a God that shows us favor in the sense of, um, in the sense of, uh, Amy was that person that was the middleman for my relationship with my wife. And so I want to look into the camera and say, Amy, thank you. Sorry to embarrass you by telling this story. I think I told it right. Uh, it's a different version than if you've heard the story than probably I told you before, but this one is, this one was the real truth. But what I need you to know is that a middleman is a person that can make connections for you that you probably aren't going to be able to make on your own. We with me on this? Okay. So that takes us to question number two. Why is Jesus a middleman? Why is Jesus my middleman? And to understand this story, we have to first go back. We have to look at Jesus' ministry but we really have to go farther back than that and uh, look before Jesus' ministry back in the times of the Old Testament. So we can look in the book of Exodus. I'm not going to put the verses up because there's a lot of them. Uh, but in Exodus and some other places in, in the Old Testament, but God is giving people, his people, the Israelites, the terms and conditions that are established in order for God to meet with us. 
And this takes a couple different forms in the Old Testament, but the, but the one I'm going to focus on today is the tabernacle. And what you need to know about the tabernacle is the tabernacle was the place of meeting for man and God in the immediate aftermath of the Israelites escaping slavery. So they're on the move, and they're not planted in a place yet. They're moving to that place where God would have them. And the tabernacle is the place where God would meet and confer with the Israelites. But what you need to know is that the tabernacle was not a place that was open for everybody. Uh, in that time, only God's chosen delegates, delegates were allowed into the tabernacle. So this is uh, God's chosen priests, the leaders of Israel. These are the only people that were allowed to go into the tabernacle or the tent. It had a number of different areas. We'll talk about those. But that innermost place, the place where God occupied, had very limited access for people. And so that means that everybody else, how did they hear from God? Through those people. The priests were the middlemen. They would, the prophets were the middlemen. They would go in into the tabernacle, hear from God, and then bring that out to the people. Through these mediators, through these middlemen. Uh, two features that stand out in the tabernacle that I want to talk to you about today that I think are really relevant. First, the tabernacle is portable. And the tabernacle was ornate. Like we can look in scripture and, and it talks about how, uh, I'm going to get the numbers right, there was over a ton of gold that went into the tabernacle. So this is a tent that the Israelites were setting up and taking down as they moved. Just because it was portable doesn't mean it wasn't excellent. And maybe that's a word for somebody at Velocity Church today is you hear a lot about when are you guys getting a building. And pastors talked about that. We're moving in those directions. But if you're thinking about a portable church is second best, we can look at the Old Testament and see, man, this, was, this wasn't just something men came up with. God handed them this idea. He was the architect of the tabernacle. And the reason is because it met people where they were. Um, so it was, it was extravagant, it was ornate, but also it was a tent. I think there's something valuable in recognizing that the God who is the author of the universe was willing to meet with his people in a stuffy, fabric, portable tent set up in the middle of the desert. That God would be willing to humble himself to say, I'm going to come to where you are and meet with you on terms that you are ready for. You know, we hear a lot, and maybe you've heard this. I've said this before. Not proud of it, but maybe you've heard people say, you know what? Like, I love the New Testament God. That Old Testament God, like, that's an angry guy. I don't like that guy. I like the New Testament God who's all about love. What I want you to hear is, man, there is only one God. And when we look at this, we see that the prevailing characteristic of that one God across Old Testament, New Testament, is his love for us. Is in the Old Testament times, you don't have to look hard to see God is always reaching out for his people. New Testament times, God is reaching out for his people. So I just want to ask, I'm going to be really intentional about like, you know, I call people out. But this whole idea of, like, New Testament God is Bruce Banner and Old Testament God is the Hulk, like, we got to throw that language out because it allow, it's just confusing for people. God is love. Scripture's very clear on that. So 
even that being true, access was limited. That innermost area had veils and thick curtains that separated, provided a permanent, impenetrable boundary between where people were and where God was. And there were only a few people that were allowed to go back and forth. The second feature of the tabernacle that I want you to hear is the area of the tabernacle that's open to everybody, the bronze altar. So the bronze altar stands in the courtyard of the tabernacle, right inside the entrance. And it had a distinct purpose. And I'm not going to walk you through scriptures very detailed about how the, how the bronze altar is to be built, how it's constructed, its dimensions. God is a God of details. And he provides us the details that we need to do the work that he calls us to do. And we see that in scripture. But what I want you to know is that the bronze altar is not a place of peace, but a place of violence. The bronze altar is where people would bring sacrifices to make atonement for their sins. And um, in this day and age, I think it's easy to overlook the gravity of what the bronze altar represented. And so I'm not going to go into too much detail about this. Some of you may have like brunch reservations after this or, or whatever, but you need to know that this was a place of violence. And what would happen is men, common people, would bring unblemished animals, uh, oxen, bulls, sheep, goats, to the bronze altar. And the purpose of the bronze altar was to sacrifice those animals to make atonement for sin. And here's what that looked like. The people would approach that altar with their animal. They would tie it to the altar. The person would be handed a sharp knife. And that sharp knife would slit the throat of that animal as the person who's sacrificing it is holding on to its head. You imagine the gravity of that. And then the priest would catch the blood and use that in a way prescribed by God. And that person would be forgiven of whatever sins they brought with them to the bronze altar. But then they'd go away and they would sin again and the process would repeat. I think when you look at this, it's not pretty, but it has a purpose. And the purpose of it is that God is reminding his people in a very visceral, hands-on, unavoidable way that the price of sin is death. And the only, and death, sacrifice, is the only way that we can be shed of sin. And I think about like, what would it be like to exist in those times? Would I have the courage to bring that unblemished animal and hold its literal life in my hands? Again, I don't want to go down that path too much farther. So I want to give you some encouragement in this. But what you should see is that the bronze altar was right inside the entrance to the tabernacle in its outer courtyard the first thing that people would see as they approached it. And what you need to know in this is the bronze altar had a very specific purpose. Is it kept, you can think about it as it's the obstacle between people and God who's in that innermost chamber. And so what you should get from this is that the same thing that separated man from God in the Garden of Eden, sin is the exact same thing that's separating man from God in the tabernacle. 
is that the sin of that altar is as far as people, as, as, as ordinary people, would get to God. But here's what I want to encourage you in, is that Jesus changed it. Because of what he did on that cross, we are given a direct pathway to God. That direct pathway wasn't created, you need to hear, was restored. That was God's original plan for us, was to have access to him directly. Because of sin, that was taken away, but Jesus restored that direct pathway and is that middleman between us and the Father. And so this is really clear in Scripture. Matthew 27, 51 tells us the, that the old way to experience God was set aside at the exact moment of Jesus' death. And I think we have that verse to put up on the screen. And it says, at that moment, the curtain, and this is at the moment that Jesus, that, that, that he died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. I have always wondered about why for this verse. The earth shook, the rocks split. Man, that sounds like a big thing. The curtain was torn. It's like, man, I can, I can tear a curtain. Like, why are we, why is that the first detail that we hear? Something that God reinforced with me this week that I want to share with you is the intentionality of the curtain being the first thing that happens here because it represents that curtain was the separation, the physical separation between man and God. And at the moment Jesus died, fulfilled his purpose here on the earth, that curtain was torn. And there's no longer that, that barrier between us and the Father. Jesus made that pathway for us. Every single person can go straight to God through Jesus. You don't need to have a priest. You don't need to have a pastor. You don't need to have a prophet interpret that for you. You have direct access. Now, as a pastor in this church, I want you to know I'm going to do my best to help point you towards Jesus, but you have direct access to him because of what, of, because of what happened on that cross all those years ago. And that's good news. I want to go on and talk a little bit more about how other ways that Jesus is our middleman. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in, they will go out, and they will find pasture. What I love about this scripture is we're so used to hearing about Jesus as the shepherd. The shepherd that cares for his flock, that protects his flock, that, that they know his voice, that speaks to them, that directs them, that takes them to fruitful places where they can graze. All of those things. And I love that imagery. And so it's a little shocking here to say Jesus uses that same analogy of the, sh of the sheep, but he says, "Not I'm the shepherd, I'm the gate. And I think when we look at this is that he is that shepherd, he is that protector, but he's also, what does a gate do? It's a doorway from one place to another. When he says, I'm the gate, what he's saying is, I'm the pathway for you to allow you to be reunited with your father and with your creator. And unlike before, in the old times where God would occupy a physical space, he would come down and meet with people. Or when Jesus was on the earth, you know, gave up, and, uh, gave up his, so much of his power to live dependent on his father the way that we do, and talked about how he was, he, he, 
Jesus could be in one place at one time. The limitations on his ministry were the same limitations you and I face. We can only, we have so many hours in a day. We can, our voices only project so far. We can only meet with so many people. Jesus had those same limitations, but what he tells us here is that those limitations are out. When Jesus left, he sent us his Holy Spirit and says, we're better off that he's gone. And what a powerful statement that is. I wonder if the apostles had the ability to understand how profound that was. You were, it's better for you that I'm leaving because I'm sending you something even more powerful. So he's with us. He can be with all of us at once in our hearts. You're as close to God. Once you've accepted Jesus, you were as close to him sitting here as you are at your home, as you would be visiting the Holy Land. You don't have to go to Mecca. You don't have to go to a place where God, he's with you always. But here's the cool part. That's not all that God does for us as our middle name. We've got another verse I'm going to put here out of, out of Acts. And it, and it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. So we know that being seated at the right hand of the Father is a position of honor. And we know that there's, it's, it's, it's a privileged position seated at the right hand, but it also carries a significance that I don't want you to miss, is historically, you walk into a king's throne room, who's the person of most influence for the king? His most trusted advisor, where's that person sitting? At his right. So it's not just Jesus in a position of honor, but he's in a position of advocacy, where he has the Father's ear, where he can petition the Father on our behalf, where he can speak to him and influence his, his thinking and his decisions. Scripture tells us that Jesus does that for us. In 1 John, it says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's a powerful thing to have an advocate. You know what? You need an advocate because you know what? You have an accuser. The devil doesn't just make accusations about us to us. We can look at scripture and see that the devil makes accusations about us to God. The devil is telling us, is telling God, we're no good. You made too many mistakes. You can't, you can't, use, you can't use that person. They haven't listened to you enough. They're not obedient enough. They're not, they're, not, they're not worthy of the calling you have on their life. All of those things. We have an accuser, but we also have an advocate. Jesus. And maybe I watch too many courtroom drama shows, um, but I like to think, let me, I'm, I'm just going to give this to you, and this is how I think about this a little bit, is I always imagine it playing out in a courtroom setting. So the devil's the prosecuting attorney. God's the judge. The devil's making the case about why we should be convicted. And we know, because scripture tells us, smart, he's eloquent, he's well-spoken, understands scripture, all of those things. So I would imagine that the devil's making his case, and I would bet he's pretty convincing. And uh, he makes his case, turns to God, and says, you know what, the prosecution rests. And God turns to Jesus and says, uh, the defense can now proceed with its case. And then I imagine that Jesus would say, your honor, um, the defense rests. And there's a gasp in that courtroom because we've all seen those legal shows and that's not what's supposed to happen. Um, 
but God says, okay, let's proceed with closing statements. And so the devil gets up as a prosecutor and makes his closing statement. And he's, there are people who are like, nod, he's pretty convincing. And uh, he's making his case and, and making that eloquently. And maybe like it gets to the end and it turns out that the devil's points all rhymed with each other. Or like he gets out a whiteboard and it turns out that like the first letter of all of his points spelled the word guilty or something like that. And people are like, oh, wow, that's really good. Like, that's, that, that is very convincing. And the devil, the devil sits down and is kind of nodding to himself, happy with, with what he's accomplished. And then God turns to Jesus and says, the defense can proceed with closing arguments. Jesus stands up from behind his table and says something along the lines of this. You know what, Your Honor? The defense completely agrees with everything that the prosecution just says. And at that point, like, audible gasp in the courtroom people are shocked by this because this isn't what's supposed to happen like that person who's like doing the sketching because that's still a thing for some reason in a courtroom but that person doing the sketching like drops their pencil and is like what and then even in that moment Jesus turns to God and said you know what we don't dis- we don't disagree with the facts that the, that the devil's laid out but you know what God we know something more we know that I have already paid the price for all of this on the cross. And, and God bangs the gavel and says, case dismissed. And then the devil's like angry and the courtroom kind of blows up and they call the next case. I'm glad that you guys like that. Like walking through that in my head, I was like picturing law and order. It was a whole, I don't know, it's a whole thing. But I, I believe God spoke to me through it, so hopefully he can speak to you. Uh, but then this whole thing plays itself out. You know, John, John Lennon said, all you need is love. I want to add to that. All you need is love and a good attorney. It's good to have an advocate. So in the, next, in the last few minutes that we have, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write out this lawyer thing just a little bit more if you'll indulge me as we transition into the third question. And that third question is, how am I a middleman? To go back to that, that eloquent courtroom picture that I painted for you a minute ago, there's a reason that it's a constitutional right that you have a defense attorney because you need one because the deck is so stacked against you otherwise we need that attorney to stick up for our rights to make sure that we're defended and protected in the same way we need Jesus we need his advocacy his protection his power his perspective but most of all we need him because he's the gate that leads to the father and there is no other way there's no secret shortcut there's no alternative route there's no detour you can take jesus said none come to the father except through me and you know what god has a plan for your life and that plan scripture tells us really plainly that you play a part in it this is if you're a believer this is the Douglas County, population 121,000 people, survey of people in Douglas County told us that only three in ten people that live in that are living in our county right now identify themselves as having a church home. It's the second lowest in any county in our state, and by far the lowest among any county with a population above 10,000. So you work the math, this means that there are 84,700. 
that sounds like a lot. It can be easy to look at that and be discouraged. But here's what I want you to hear. I don't want you to feel discouraged. I want you to see it as an opportunity. Go back to our Amazon example at the beginning. Don't you think that if some Amazon junior VP figured out some market where seven out of ten people needed the services that Amazon was providing but didn't have access to it, you better believe that Amazon would be excited about diving into that market and being the middleman for those people. And so what I want to encourage you is to see that the same way, is imagine 84,700 people without a church home in Oklahoma. What could God do with those people? How many marriages could he save? How many families could he keep together? How many addictions would he overcome? How many hopeless people would receive hope? How many eternal destinies changed. That's the vision. The question is, how do we get there? How do we become the middleman? There's a lot in that statement that we don't have time to unpack today, so I'm going to give you one really simple and powerful step to invite somebody. Invite somebody to come to church with you next week. When you walked in on our program, you got that Easter invite card. That card is not for you if you're here today. That card is a way to open with somebody you want to bring to church. And, and hear our heart. It's not about growing Velocity Church. It's about growing the kingdom. God has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of those people in your lives. And so a few more things that just really spoke to me in preparing this message is out of people who have never been to church before in their lives, seven out of ten of those people have never been invited to church to just 